Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Good morning, Appalachia. Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I am Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we're going to be diving into a specific review of the Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians. Paul's prohibitions. Paul's prohibitions. Are we talking about prohibition or prohibitions? Prohibitions. We're not talking about the absence or the, the illegality of booze in the 19, uh, early, early 20th century. No, no. Or, or women's suffrage that helped cat, uh, make that a reality for many people. Or the Kennedys and how they got rich on bootlegging. Or, not, or how NASCAR developed as you know, running from the cops during that so era. Zoom. Mm. So no, none of that. None of that. Uh, instead, we're talking about 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then... We lost Corinthian letter? No. No. What, what kind of... I'm not saying we're talking about it. I'm saying like... No, you, the fact you refer to it as the I'm lost referring Corinthian to it, letter. It's, it's like, you keep it's, all your Gnostic heresies over there. <laughs> did they say that? Did, I mean, am I wrong in saying that? There's a Corinthian correspondence, and first and second Corinthians are probably second and third. But we don't know that there was an, a, a, a literal letter as much as, as it was the passing forth passing back and forth of information, a correspondence. But the two written documents that have survived through church, church history and tradition um, are the scripture, scriptural books, First and Second Corinthians. The other book is First Clement, and Clement was the bishop of Rome who wrote to the Corinthians in around 96 AD because of some issues that had developed after a period of stability and health, meaning they listened to what Paul said in his letters they got their act together, and then they got their act untogether. Does that work? Untogether? I think that counts as a word. They were very untoward toward Paul's So when, when you say things like that, what you're, what you're actually saying, what's implied, is that either um, Paul wrote that letter, or that, it's the best way to say this gently, um, the church is wrong. Like, this should have been in the canon. It's the lost letter. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's implications. There are people that believe that. So, I, do, I know that, but it's. Yeah, they're, they're, they're Christian, well, well, Christian theologians who talk about a fallible list of infallible books. And they say it's a fallible list because it was made by the church and the church can make mistakes. And there are others who would say, no, God directly and immediately superintended the compilation of the books. It's infallible. There cannot. There will be nothing else added to the book of script. I'm of with you. I agree. With you. Yeah. So the loaded. I know you I didn't. Just but that's to articulate that somewhere. Like I did. I know you didn't mean that. He did. He, he did. did. He's he like. Did. I think those guys when they got together, they uh, they were a big wrong. He's got that beard right now, so he's like, I'm a theologian. <laughs> <laughs> you got to shave your head and have the beard, and that's when. Got to get my 95 theses together. Uh, probably 97 nowadays. You got mm -hmm. two more. So, uh, I don't know if our listeners have, have noticed, but over the last five, six episodes, there's been um, a particular church mentioned, ancient church, we're not talking about modern churches here, and that is the church of Corinth, and specifically with, 
relating to our topics that we've been talking about and some of the issues that we're having. And I think the best way to segue us into that is to tell, get a little bit of an Old Testament story here. There we go. Story time. Nathan the prophet, and he goes to King David, and he says, Let's, uh, let me tell you a story about this rich man who took a poor man's lamb. And, um, oh, that's bad. What do, you, what do you think should happen to him? He's like, oh, he should be punished. King David responds, but he should be punished. Nathan goes, you are that man. And when we're looking at the church of Corinth, I think what we're really drawing from is we are that church. Yes. We, we are. In a lot of ways, in the issues that we're having, in the problems that we're having, and I think Paul would be writing a very similar letter to us as he does to the Corinthians, talking really specifically the Church of American Western Civilization. You know what I think the difficult part is? One of the difficult parts for that is when you think about what would the apostles say today? Well, clearly they would say what they said. That's one, one point. But there's such a false understanding, not false, I mean, it's false, but there's a, a misunderstanding of how the scripture, let me bet, not how, there's a, there's a misappropriation of relevance and that the Holy Spirit calls us to be relevant. And what that means, the intentional uh, understanding behind those kinds of statements is often we need to change the doctrine or figure out what scriptures apply and what scriptures don't. So you can't even ask the question, what will Paul say or Peter say? Because they were only raised up for the generation that they lived in. And they created a, a temperament or a, a template of being appropriate, of being relevant to the age that they were in. And, they, and when, you, when you parallel the way that they preached the gospel and the way that they called the church to live with the way contemporary thinkers called the church to, to believe and to live, those those two paradigms are often diametrically opposed to each other. And one of the beliefs that we have baked into our 39 articles, because the Church of England did not have a revolution, it was a reformation. And there's a big difference. What they, what they said in defense of the reformation was that a man washes the dirt from his face. And that's what we're doing as a church. We're washing away the dirt. We're washing away the accrual of things over time that are opposed to Scripture. We don't have authority to do anything contrary to Scripture. They did not say we're going to negate what the Scripture means and go with a relevant approach, which is what's been done now for decades, for so long, that even the idea that that's not what should be done is foreign to many, many Christian leaders who are past the Middle Age. Like they've grown up in seminary being told they need to be relevant and they need to be contemporary. And when you notice the paradigm of the apostles, that's not what they're doing. They're appropriating God's unchanging truth to changing situations. But in the process of doing that, they create a template, uh, 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 a template, like I mentioned, that doesn't change because it's built apostolic practice and apostolic doctrine are so wedded together. How do you separate them without doing significant destruction? And that, uh, we talked about Richard Hooker and many of the other Anglican divines, that's points that they make. They say things like customs shouldn't even be changed. Unless the custom is in violation of Scripture, don't even change the customs. If it's a longstanding custom, don't change it. Well, what we're going to look at today is Paul's prohibitions. What are the things, and we'll just work through 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter, because that's essentially what you can do almost, uh, segment by segment, but some of those segments are by chapter. What are the things that Paul specifically says don't do and I think this is going to, for some people, it's going to be like, wait, I, I thought that wasn't, 
I thought that was just for then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not aware of anything that Paul is prohibiting that was acceptable in the church up until probably 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah, and I think you brought up specifically Anglican thought, really. Classic Anglican thought starts a perfection and works its way out. Yeah, we, we start from what the Scripture says as the ideal and say this is the truth that must be. We recognize this is what's not the experience of God's people on the ground, but we don't change the ideal. Exactly. We reason from what Scripture says to where we are, not the other way around. And, it's, and I think that's what Paul does here, and part of why he's so disgusted is because he starts at that ideal. He does. Like, his, his, his correction is always gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel correction. This is what should be. This is what ought be. And it's not. Like, let's fix this. Right. I, I, when, um, there's been many theologians through Christian history who have pointed out rightly that Paul's understanding of the church is intrinsically, essentially, fundamentally tied up in his understanding of Christ, and how does he come to know Jesus? But through his experience on the way to Damascus. And so he sees Christ glorified, and it's from Christ's work, his, his finished, or not his, it's from his presence as glorified man, son of David, enthroned in heaven, who's Messiah, that Paul then reasons downward to the experience of the church, right? So when you open up your Bible, and our listeners, I encourage you to do this if you're sitting at a coffee table somewhere, and you look at 1 Corinthians, Paul says to them in verse 4, I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him with all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony to Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus is perfect, and he's enthroned in heaven, and he's arrayed in glory, and because baptism is the, is the sacrament by which we are united to Jesus, Paul starts with the perfection that's in heaven. He starts with, if you want to use later theological lingo, he starts with, the experience of the church triumphant, and the head of the church is Jesus. And he starts with this heavenly perfection. And you see him doing this in Ephesians and Colossians as well. So he starts with this, and he says, you've been given all of this blessing. In Ephesians, he says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, because Christ is in the heavens, and you've been raised up and seated with him in the heavens, right? So, because he's our, our head. He's the head of the church. He starts there with the Corinthians. But I'm going to tell you right now, very quickly, he goes into what's the experience, boots on the ground. I mean, I, I read down through verse 9, verse 10, without missing a beat, he says, I appeal to you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. So, boom, he, here's, here's what you guys are, and then immediately, like Moses throwing down the, the law, uh, the tablets of the law and breaking them, he just throws down the word, he's like, I'm, in the name of Jesus, knock it off. I mean, this is, these are some significant prohibitions we're about to jump into, and um, we do well to recognize that perspective so we don't reason the other way. We don't start with our experience and project that into heaven. We start with the triumphant church, which is realized ultimately in her head, Christ, and then we look at our experience. That's how we have to do this. 
So the first thing Paul prohibits is schism and division. So they're divided around the cult of personality. And he mentions specifically those that have come from Chloe's house. Uh, Chloe is a, she's a, a person of leadership influence in the church who's facilitating the meetings in her home. And he, he says that people from her house have come to him to tell him what's going on. So he's, this is part of that correspondence aspect. So he's getting information, and now here's the response. Some of you are saying that you're part of Paul, or you belong to Apollos, or you belong to Cephas, that'd be Peter. And others who are like, I'm not getting in your party spirit at all. I'm non-denominational. I just belong to Jesus. So you've got this happening. Now, what happens with bringing up this distinction, because today it would go like this. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Pentecostal. I think it's, it's actually, I think it's segregated a little bit more. Because think about just uh, pastor celebrities in today's world in the last like 15 years. Not that it wasn't prevalent like the 90s or late 80s, but it's like. Right. You, you, and it's I mentioned. It's easier to, pr pr to prop right. them up. Right. Because a lot of people can just have, they don't need to have TBN anymore. You have the broadcast thing of social media everywhere. And anybody can right. have that. Right. Well, I, I mentioned the, the mainline denominational groupings because those are in contrast to saying I'm Anglican or I'm Roman or I'm Greek or I'm Alexandrian. Mm -hmm. You see? So there's a difference between denominational arrangements and provinces within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We have this in the 39 Articles, where it talks about the Church of Rome, the Church of Constantinople, the Church of Jerusalem, the Church of Ephesus. And we do right to think about the Church as she is arranged provincially, or if that word's throwing people off, geographically. And so when we talk about being Anglicans, we're talking about being Catholics with a history that goes through the British Isles, that goes through the way the gospel worked itself out and converted the various pagan tribes and Celtic tribes and the Britons all through Christian history back to the beginning. When you start talking about denominations, you're not talking about provinces anymore. You're, you're not talking about the geographic arrangement of Christians. You're talking about something else. You're talking about intentional schismatic organizations. Some of them are they are schismatic and others are a kind of independence an independent church perspective paul condemns that as well so when we we haven't even gotten through the end of the chapter one but you can see how that we're not going to be able obviously to do this in an exhaustive way but to say the first prohibition that paul comes down against is the cult of personality and essentially the kind of denominationalism that divides the body instead of recognizing that the church needs to be organized as one church in every geographic place that she, that she dwells in, that she's in, right? Right. So just to be clear here, you're saying that what Paul's saying, which what I'm getting, he's saying you guys need to agree. He's obviously telling them to agree upon the doctrines that they've been given, right? Well, no. His agreement here is that they, the, the agreement he's calling for is that there be no dissensions. Cyprian picks this up when he talks about the unity of the church, when he, he's writing almost in, in a ghastly way, and he says, uh, to paraphrase, 
Can you imagine a man walking down the street and there's one church next to another and both of them are claiming to be the only way to heaven through Jesus Christ? And what's the common person supposed to do? Because here's multiple churches vying to be the body of Christ and they're divided. I mean, Cyprian calls this stuff out, you know, in what, 248, between 248 and 260 thereabouts. He's writing about this stuff. So he's identifying, he's in Carthage, he's in North Africa. So he's dealing with this, the things that, for us, are common experience for the past 300 years. And the, the erroneous idea that that's the Holy Spirit. Because to, to plaster over that misappropriation and the clear prohibition of Paul is the teaching of, well, the Holy Spirit uses many people as a net to catch many different kinds of fish. So the more kinds of churches and the different kinds of denominations we can have, the more effective we'll be at sharing the gospel. That's not true. That's not true to the witness of the church. That's in violation of the Lord's Prayer in John 17. It's in violation to the practice of the apostles. If that was the case, you could have had a, a, a Petrine, a Pauline, and Apolline, Apolline, you could have it, you could have all of these churches in Corinth that claim to be under the authority of these anointed men of God that were reaching so many more Corinthians than one church that was getting rid of its distinction for the sake of being in agreement with each other. But we act like this is the Holy Spirit. But I think even what Paul does with that problem is he doesn't he doesn't blame the teachers per se. He blames their immaturity. He is blame, yeah, he is not laying this at the feet of Apollos and Cephas. No, he's like he's not dissing them. Don't rather he one he says you're immature. That's your issue. Like you think you're wise, but you're nothing more than the a field in a building. Right. Right. Yeah, that's you, what I, he says. That's, that's, that's the example he, he uses. Yeah. And then but the answer to this problem is unified apostolic ministry and power. Yes. And that's what his appeal back to is why should they be united? Because he says, um, is Christ divided? Because Jesus can't be. He can't be divided. Cyprian says that as, that as well. Christ cannot be divided. And he says, was Paul's cru crucified for you? Meaning, these people that you're following, myself amongst them, we weren't crucified for you. We didn't, we're not the Redeemer. We're not the Savior. We are not the ones that create movements for you to follow. Because, the, and he will emphasize this, especially in 2 Corinthians, is that the evidence of the apostolic ministry is not signs and wonders, but perseverance and hostility that would cause most people to quit. It's the endurance in the midst of radical, radical confrontation, uh, violence, that evidences the apostolic nature of those men who are apostles, who are serving that way, not because they are the redeemers, but because they're serving the one who was crucified and now reigns in power. So Paul's emphasizing the unity of the church, and he doesn't make this, this, is, this I know this is tough for contemporary Americans he, uh, and Western thinkers, he does not make the unity of the church a secondary issue of doctrine. This is another example of where doctrine and practice are so inextricably bound together that you cannot separate them. The unity of the church is essential. It's fundamentally essential to the gospel because the gospel can't be divided. And one of the problems that you see in the ecumenical movement that starts really, uh, you know, roughly 100 years ago is that what was an attempt to reconcile and bring to, to bring a visible kind of Christian unity, Christian unity um, has in many ways re reduced itself to the lowest common denominator 
so that uh, let me let me let me parallel, parallel it this way. Um, and well, man, how we, we we got so many other prohibitions to get to. But let, let me let me let me parallel it this way. What when the Reformation takes place? What is the commonality of Christian belief? Like, what do you have to believe and do to be a Christian? Now, don't, don't answer the question. I'm just throwing it out there, generically speaking. Move forward a few hundred years after the Reformation, and they work through those issues of what it takes to be a Christian and to legitimately be, be part of the body of Christ, to be part of the church. You jump forward to the ecumenical movement, and, which is about 400 years later, and what are they doing? I just mentioned it. They're... they're, they're trying to reach out and to bring as much unity together as you can, and they boil it down to a certain kinds of essentials. But then they negate the essentials for the purposes of unity. And so we're no longer even advocating for a Christian unity of creedal practice, of creedal confession, and of apostolic practice, but of something that's rooted in something far less. So who determines what's Christian now? But some sort of distorted and perverted kind of fundamentalism and the fundamentalism for fundamentalists as a response to the liberalism in mainline denominations, you know, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, the fundamentalists essentially had five points of doctrine you had to agree upon. Well, you compare the fundamentalists' five points, which were the virgin birth, you know, Jesus' miracles, his death, his resurrection, his coming again. So there, there's the fundamentals, along with a couple other doctrines like the Trinity and things. But the, the fundamentalists in America became, that fundamentalism became the means by determining who was part of the body of Christ who was saved, I should say. Not the visible church, but who was saved. And that's in contrast to the mainline groups, like the Episcopal Church and the other Anglican bodies and the Lutherans and the Methodists. But coming out of the Anglican world was the Lambeth Quadrilateral. Here are these four essentials that we have to agree upon. And none of those four essentials were not what the fundamentalists start using 60 years later. It's a whole different category list. And so the point I'm bringing this up is who determines what it is to be Christian, because for such a long time, because we're living in this very, very schismatic, hyper-personalized, hyper-individual charismaticized epoch of Christian history, nobody even knows how to become a Christian anymore. They listen to what um, Billy Graham said, or they listen to what uh, uh, the Moody Institute said, or they listen to Harvest Chapel, or they listen to Joel Olstein, or they listen to Benny Hinn, or they, they listen to somebody else tell them what it is, because the church, in an attempt to be united, didn't really seek to reconcile in fullness, but to appropriate a level of common denominators that in the, at the end result is something that's unintelligible to New Testament apostolic practice and to the majority of Christians around the world the majority of Christian practice throughout the world. And I, I, there's so much more to go into this. Um, you know, everything from our hyper-individualized hyper way of being saved to what constitutes a church and to the practice of the church, that if it, there's no bishop there, then according to the teaching of Paul and the apostles and all the fathers of the church and everybody up until the Reformation, that's not a church. I mean, so there's so much here that needs to be mined into, and we are in such a we have such a breakneck speed about us to go and accomplish a bunch of stuff, and we fail to realize that a lot of that is our own energy. And at the end of uh, of the the epoch that we're in, how much of the work that we're building is going to it, it'll die? 
it'll blow away because all flesh is grass. You know, so it's like the northern tribes of Israel. They're gone. They were gone before Judah fell. Does it mean that those people weren't Israelites? No, but it means they were building and sustaining something that the Lord wasn't pleased with. So he, did he remove them from covenant altogether? Not until the very end. And he sent, he sent prophet after prophet. Uh, even Hezekiah, the king in the south, you know, Hezekiah tries to reconcile the tribes and they won't do it. And there's a reason the book of Tobit, uh, Tobit comes down to us through the Apocrypha, the Deuterocanonical, because Tobit is a man in the northern kingdom who goes down to Jerusalem to keep the feasts as God had commanded. He doesn't get caught up into the, the sins of Jeroboam and all this. So you've got all of these layers here, okay? And this is just the first prohibition. For the sake of Jesus Christ who died for you, live a cruciform life with each other and get along. You don't have authority as a church to walk out of step with the rest of the churches. That's his first prohibition. And the first way that they're doing that is they're breaking into, into schismatic denominational groupings. That's what they're doing. And I think this is an area, like not just that, but he starts talking about the things they've been given. Yes. Like in this issue, where's I think a direct application to Western culture um, and America specifically is the wealth. He's like, you've received teaching because he hits on two aspects. He's hit, he's hit it on, uh, you've received great teaching from myself, Apollos. Once again, he's not, he doesn't get mad at Apollos. He's like, you're doing a good work. These people are dumb. And I'm going to tell them that. He's like, they've been given everything they need to succeed. They, they are rich. They are wealthy. And they're st you're still not doing this thing. I'm not, and he says, I'm not doing this so you're ashamed, but so you can do the right thing. Right, because that's chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's dealing with uh, these, well, in chapter 4 a little bit too. It's this principle of the way that they're dividing and segmenting. And he uses all these analogies, uh, talking about how the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit. And this is significant at the end of chapter 2, where he starts talking about this, because what has he said? That, but they are, they are enriched with all the spiritual gifts. They're not lacking any of them. And when, to jump forward to the end of chapter 14, they're, they're operating in spiritual gifts quite powerfully, very powerfully, so much so that they believe they have authority to do what they please. When you, when you read the, these two sec sections of text, segments of you know, uh, the first four chapters and then the end of chapter 14, you read them together, you get a very comprehensive picture of what's going on, how they're dividing and segmenting because they believe that they're anointed. Well, Paul says you are anointed. You have received gifts, but you need to live a cruciform life. One of the ways that the church has uh, done this through history, lived this principle out, is that the more anointed somebody was, like the more powerful their spiritual gifts, um, even the phenomena, like if they're a stigmatist or something, but the more pronounced the charismatic nature and qualities that they had, the more they were kept away from public platforms and the limelight the more they were forbidden to be out in front of the people because the pride of Lucifer was his downfall. And notice that when the scripture talks about the devil and, and it talks about him being, you know, the bright morning star and the anointed cherub that covers who walked amongst the fiery stones in Eden and, and, and you know, he's this beautiful creature. The scripture never says he wasn't beautiful. It never says he wasn't beautiful. It says he was proud and he wouldn't serve. And Paul is calling attention to the practice of the Corinthians of how carnal they are and that they're engaging in practices that's like the angels of light 
who are really demons. You do have this anointing, so you better live a cruciform life, just like me. That's what he's saying. So you put those pieces together and you start to see this picture that's emerging, and he's calling them to unity and wholeness because the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit because the things of the Spirit say you don't advance yourself, you submit and you serve the church, and you stay in step with what the church is doing across the world. Because it's five times in this letter, Paul will use a phrase uh, or a phrase something like this, amongst all the churches. And what he's saying is the Corinthians, not only are, are they at war in their, amongst themselves in Corinth, they are making the Corinthian church walk out of step with the rest of the churches. And I think he branches a lot of times that out of um, the idea of apostolic ministry yes. and what he's doing. And the idea of this is what the church is doing because this is what we as the apostles, we are in step with each other. Imitate us. So he specifically said, because I'm your spiritual father, says imitate me. But it's, it's derived from you want to know how to be like all the other churches. How to, or like rather be like the church. Right, right. Just imitate us, your apostles. Yes. Specifically me, because I'm your, I'm your daddy. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I am that figure for you to imitate. That's what he gets at here in chapter 4. He says in 4.6, I have applied all this to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you might, may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What have you that you did not receive? And he'll say, that, he'll say that again to them in chapter 14. If then you received it, why do you boast as if, you were, if it were not a gift? He says, uh, you scroll on down through chapter 4, he says in verse um, 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are ill-clad and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. And he's calling them to imitate this. He's saying, you want to be anointed. Well, you received the anointing from the Spirit and because of the gospel that you heard from us. So why are you con conducting yourselves like kings with the authority of wise men to do as you please when everything that you have you received as a gift. And that's baked into the ordination charge to the priests. Priests are stewards and guardians and watchmen. Priests do not have authority to change the practice of the apostles, not bishops and not deacons. We're all recipients of what the Word of God has commanded, and we have to ensure that it never changes. And the church is called to expect that of her clergy. Okay, that's the first prohibition, all right? You got it, Josh? Check. Any other questions about the first prohibition? No, that's, that's pretty. The second prohibition, and the second one we're pulling out of the text, because there's others, but we're trying to keep these in seg segments, okay? The next one is about sexual immorality. It's in chapter 5. So Paul's next prohibition is you need to live a sexually pure life. He says in chapter 5, Although I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. And Paul then goes on to excommunicate, or in some, some churches use the phrase disfellowship. He's excommunicating this man, and he calls the church to agree with the excommunication. The excommunication means he's cut off from receiving Christ in the Eucharist. 
this is significant because he hasn't laid this charge to the schismatic people yet in the first four chapters. Although when you read 2 Corinthians 13, he's talking about his coming to see them again. And he's, he's essentially saying he's going to come and inspect everything. And so if they hadn't addressed the stuff he's dealt with in the first four chapters, that's when he's going to start proving to them that Jesus is in him, alive in him. Okay? Well, here in chapter 5, he's laying out the immediate action. You must excommunicate this man now. I've already given him over to the devil. Now, this is the most severe and significant form of punishment in the New Testament is to withhold absolution, and not just to withhold absolution, but to pronounce an act of judgment to excommunicate from the grace that's received in the Eucharist. And it's punitive. The intent is to cause the person who's under the authority and the sway and the influence of the devil to be provoked through the affliction of his flesh to repent so that he can be reconciled to the church. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this is what happens. So they excommunicate this man. We don't know his name, but when you get to 2 Corinthians, there's been repentance and he's received back into the church and he's reconciled. The excommunication's lifted. This is the next big prohibition. Churches today, in many ways, don't practice this because there's a law of attrition, because we don't have any kind of church discipline to begin with. There's no serious expectation to be involved. Like, people miss church on Sundays, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and just act like that's not a big deal. Or they won't engage in the moral expectations, like Paul's talking about here with sexuality. And so they'll engage in all kinds of heinous activities and expect it to be okay. And Paul continues this, this he's paralleling, or he's talking about them all together, but he's talking about the sexual immorality and then the next prohibition is lawsuits, how they're taking each other to court, okay? He, he talks about these things together and then starts to deal with um, principles about what the church is as the temple of God. So he's saying there's one temple at the end of chapter 6, and you're that temple and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So you don't take Christ and unite him to a prostitute, kind of throwing back to the, the immorality issues in chapter 5, and then also dealing with the way that they're sinning against each other by taking each other to court. He's saying, why not rather be wronged? I.e., go back to what he says in the previous chapters. Why not live a cruciform life because everything you have you received as a gift? So he's, he's pulling all of this together, and he's teaching them the principle, um, as he says in 6, 6.12, all things are lawful for me, which is probably something they've said in the correspondence. But then his response is, but not all things are helpful, or not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be enslaved by anything. So Paul's saying there's, uh, as we talked about last week, the altness of God, there is an intended purpose to everything in creation. And the, intention, the intended purpose for the body is not to obey sexual passions, it's not to obey gluttonous desires, and it's not to obey greed and idolatry to fight to keep things that are that, you know, your properties and things like this. So he's dealing with this head on again, and he doesn't, he just kind of, he kind of morphs his discussion because he takes this into chapter seven, and now he's talking again about immorality, but in a much more um, directive way for practical purposes about what do you do, uh, what does a father do with his daughter? How does he set up the marriage for her? Uh, what, what, is, what is the appropriate uh, response 
between those who want to live a life of celibacy that's devoted to the kingdom of God and those who want to get married and how do you how do you live into those two states given the expectation of the Lord's coming given the expectation of impending judgment and conflict because of the world that you live in and the very difficult experience of the church in the era okay now there's something in chapter 7 well, before we do that, any any you guys want to say anything about five and six? So I think the end of chapter five, he brings out a really interesting concept um, about the in and in and he he creates the theory of in and out. Yes, there is a different standard for those that are in the church that are part of the body of Christ, and you you hit on that a lot in chapter six on the uh, the practical application of that, and really just why because of who we become, the ontology of like salvation. And what happens? And he goes to the point where he's like, don't even eat with the brother that is immoral. And he doesn't just say sexually immoral. He does expand this. But I think one of the things he's saying is don't be surprised when the world is sexually immoral. They're greedy. He goes on to say swindlers or idolaters. Right. He says, don't be surprised. They're of the world. They're, they're, they have not had a a change in who they are to the very fiber of their being. They've not been united to the head in heaven. Exactly. That's right. So why would you expect that? However, if they have been, there is a standard. He's like, and you will you, to judge them. I don't care. I have no business judging those outside of the church, but those who are inside, let me tell you, we're going to be hard on each other. We're going to live up to that standard because of who we are and who we're united to. Well, this is what he's hitting at. I mean, he's, he's, he's calling them to that kind of faithfulness. Because he says in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he gives one of the vice lists, vice lists of the New Testament, where he says that, don't be deceived. The immoral, idolaters, adulterers, sexual perverts, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, or thieves will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. And that's the, the, the being in the covenant or outside of the covenant. And living in the covenant is not about your creedal confession, but about your behavior. Now, it's not behavior apart from the creed, but they've, they've got to go together. And that's another theme he'll pick up again in chapter 10. So, And I think this is something that we have, to be, we have to specifically preach. And the idea in the church is that we can't talk about these things because then people will be tempted to them. And I realize that there, there's some tasteful Tempted approach. to them or leave the church. Yes, yeah. or leave the church. Right. But I, I, I think of the story you told um, when you were a very young believer talking to uh, a pastor who I, man of God, a standard and above reproach. So this is not to, to go at his character. I think a little bit of his presuppositions. And you said, he was talking about um, not, be, you shouldn't live together if you're not married. Right. And that you hadn't heard that. And the assumption was of this man was that you already knew that, but we, right. Cause he was working from a different generation yes. where that stuff was readily understood that you didn't do it. Not that he disagreed with it. Like uh, he obviously was like, you don't do that. Like right. the, the word, this you don't do this as a Christian. Yeah, I was I in, do it at all. I, I was in the church for almost a year, a little over a year before I knew what the word one knew the word cohabitation. We just said live together, but before I knew that people who cohabitated, man and wife, because the, the like the homosexual cohabitation wasn't even a thing that was discussed mm -hmm. at the time, um, but just people living together without being married was a sin, like acting as if they were married you know, uh, and all the, the aspects that go along with that, that's, that's forbidden by scripture. You, you, you're either married or you're not, you, you know, uh, but yeah, that he, he, 
Right. And even, I mean, I've had conversations with people who are going to churches and they're like, what do you mean? Today. Yeah. And all these other ideas. We, I think the fine line between, you know, being tasteful, but yet at the same time saying this is wrong. Right. This is not the, the standard of the gospel holds us to a much higher Well, because level. there's no call to repentance in the process of people being converted. They're, they're, what happens in a lot of places, and this is regardless of whether it's a big church or a small church, there's such a desire for churches to grow that there's no, there's no expectation of moral transformation mm-hmm. or the, the uh, because there's no, there's no belief in the power that's being conveyed through the sacrament to make us one with Christ that would call for a change of behavior and a change of thought. And I wonder sometimes, would, would Paul have been able to say that of many of you once were? I wonder if he would, that sentence would have had to change. I think he would. And say, yeah. a lot of you still are, and y'all need to fix it. I think a lot of what Paul would do in many American churches is what he does when he gets to Ephesus in Acts 19. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they would say, who's that? And then Paul gives them the gospel, baptizes them, and lays hands on them to receive the Spirit. So I don't think, I think in a lot of ways, we need to re-evangelize the church. Mm-hmm. We, like, we need to see conversion in the church because, and we need conversion in the pulpits. We need people who don't just, because there's not even a form of Christianity anymore that's rooted in the gospel and historic practices. It's a form that's rooted in American entrepreneurship or American corporate ideals. It's not, it's not rooted in the gospel. It's in something else. Even the way that we advertise church growth and development is rooted in business principles and not the gospel proclamation of crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Yeah, those are those are great, you know, entrepreneurial strategies, right? But they're the apostolic ones. They are <laughs> right. Well, are. even like down to when you were planning our church yeah. and what the Lord placed in your heart wasn't where do I want to build my church? Where do I want to do this? Is where do I want to place the altar? Right. Because this a sacramental mm-hmm. ministry. It, well, and it's it's synonymous with apostolic. They're the same. That they are the same. So you see this through Paul, and it it's not one. I think many times we, um, we think of sacramental, liturgical, boring, powerless. Right. Which is the opposite of what Paul, Paul's like, you want to know how I'm legit? Right. My power, he mentions that back earlier in the book. You, right. It's the same thing. It's that transformation, like yes. saying it's the power and it's not wisdom to the world. It doesn't no, mean it's the antithesis. It doesn't mean we go out and we're like stupid, like we're going to, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, like, there are you don't, still objectively you don't, wrong right. things. You don't, you don't get a storefront spot and start doing some great music and set up some chairs and say, we got a church. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not even how they planted churches in the New Testament. That's definitely not how churches were established through Christian history. All I know uh, is, however Paul does it, he ends up getting beat pretty bad. He does. He does. So, I mean, I, something has to be different than what we're doing. And I'm not against storefront churches. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that, that the, the quick approach to doing things that's not rooted in the apostolic practice of calling people to participating in an active way with Jesus' death and resurrection is not how this is yep. done away. It's not done that it's not done the way that it should be. And I think just to piggyback off of some of what Adam was talking about within the first Corinthians five, about how Paul lays out the premise, okay, this is how we deal with people within the church. Obviously one of the growth principles that we talk about here at Church of Ascension sometimes it's like, okay, discipleship. Proper discipleship turns, you know, evangelizing people the right way who are Christian mm-hmm. helps in the long run for you to evangelize other people who aren't. This is where the letter to Clement would speak. 
we're not ready to get into that exactly yet. Maybe we'll have to do that as a separate episode. But um, this is where Clement speaks to that because Clement's writing with a, a, a few decades of time between Second Corinthians and his letter to them, where they've gotten Paul's point and they've done it, but now they're falling back into some old ways, and he's got to call them to an account again. They they got the discipleship down. Um, okay, let me let me bring up something I mentioned with, uh, real quickly. We well, we mentioned chapter seven and the practical stuff Paul says. But there's something here in the chapter that's I want to highlight because Paul starts to make a distinguish, uh, distinguish, distinguishment, distinguishment, distinction, distinction. That's it. He starts to make a distinction between the command of the Lord and His command, and His advice. He 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 differentiates between these, and he says uh, at the end of in verse forty at the end of chapter seven. But in my judgment. She is happier if she remains as she is. Talking about a widow would be happier if she lived a celibate life of prayer and service to the Lord instead of going to get married again. He says, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. He's saying she's free to remarry, but I think she'll be happier. And it's his last phrase, and I think that I have the Spirit of God. Another indication that the Corinthians are saying, we have the Spirit, we have these anointing gifts, we have prophecy empowered and miracles. So this is what should be done. And Paul's coming along and he's saying, I have the Spirit too, guys, and I'm going to give you a different perspective. And my perspective is rooted in my apostolic ministry and my visions of Jesus in the whole Old Testament. So, why bring it up at this point? Paul issues certain prohibitions that must be enforced everywhere, and then he presents these, and he says, here's what you can do, but I have the Spirit too. Meaning, you take very, 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 very significant time, or not time, uh, uh, um, weight, significance of weight to what he's saying as his counsel. And, he, and it's almost as if Paul's saying, like, kind of like when he talks to Philemon, you know, about releasing Onesimus. He's kind of like doing a little bit of arm twisting here to saying, okay, you, here's what the Lord says. Here's what I think. And I've got the spirit. Really pay attention to what I'm saying. And you'll see that I'm, I'm more right than you are. So obey this, this principle that I've set out for you. And he does that a couple times through chapter 7 as he's trying to spell this out for them, okay? All right, let's, um, and we could talk about that as well at length, but I, that's opening up that principle of there's, there is a distinction, but what we notice with Paul, unless he tells us it's his opinion, we're to believe and, and operate as if what he's telling us is the Lord's command. It's a very, very important because there are people that rightly identify the difference between universal commands and historic commands. Well, the things that are historic commands that apply just to that moment in history, to the Sitzim Laban, the situation in life, are things that Paul says are from him. Everything else, the correct assumption based upon the, the trajectory of his text, uh, of the text here, is it's the Lord's command. That's why these prohibitions we're looking at, the big ones, are universal. They're not just a couple things in, in, in an era, okay? Okay, chapter 8, Paul's next prohibition. Don't eat food dedicated to idols. Simple. But his, his reasoning why, mm, Right. I think it's where it's not... Many people would be like, oh, we don't want to associate with that, blah, 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 blah. That's not what he, that's not his logic. He actually goes at a very different approach to the problem. 
the, the, the core isn't the idols because they're not real. Is what he says. He's, there's no God but God. Well, he, he, he says both in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So one place is he says there's, an idol is nothing. And then in another place, he says that I don't want you participating at the table of demons. So there's, there's both that are real, and both need to be weighed. And then there's also the weaker conscience of people who perceive the demons to be at every idol station. Every idol itself is a demon. And he, Paul says both. Both are, are in play. And he's saying that giving thanks over the food breaks the idol power. If there is some demonic power to it. Uh, we, we, we sacrifice to the god of uh, pragmatism by the way that we farm our, our meats. You know, think about the turkey farms and the number of turkeys and the pig farms and, and the cows and the slaughterhouses and the tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of animals that are butchered without any kind of humane process to the way that uh, they're, they're, they're butchered and, and prepared to be eaten. That's not how they did it in the ancient world. The, the particular animal was dedicated to a god before it was killed, and then it was killed and its parts you know, hung for purchase in the market. And they were always dedicated to a deity. So it, was, it would have been almost impossible to go buy meat that hadn't been offered to an idol somewhere in the market. So Paul's dealing with this for the Corinthians because that's obviously something that they're dealing with all the time. We sanctify the food through the Word of God in prayer, which is why we say grace. We, we pray, pray over our meals, is offering it to God, even though we're not the ones who killed the animal. Okay? So in 8, 9, and 10, he's dealing with food sacrifice to idols. He's dealing with Christian freedom. So he's using this as a means to explain how we live as Christian freedom, which is to be exercised by serving one another. Take it back to the first four chapters. So it's the principle again brought up. Okay, and he's he's tying all of those threads together, and he's sitting, and, and when you get to chapter ten, he starts to pull out some of the dangers. Is that when you start to engage in sexual immorality, and you start to engage in idolatry, and you start to engage in this uh, this divisive divisive party spirit, as is ep- uh, evidenced in the book of Numbers, multiple places, you end up experiencing what the Israelites experienced, and you die in the desert. So now he's starting, so in chapter 5, right, you pointed out how he talks about those who are in the covenant and outside of the covenant, and how he judges those that are inside the church. And now he's talking about, well, you guys are in a position where um, I'm not even there to pass judgment, judgment on some of the things you're doing, but the Lord's there. And what happened to Israel, who was his covenant people, is going to happen to you unless you start to get the, your act together. So he says in chapter 10, uh, in verse Nine, we must not put the Lord to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as a warning, but, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So Paul is taking now into chapter 10, and he's starting to sum up so much of what he's been saying And he's saying, what happened to Israel is going to happen to you. And the same things that the Israelites were doing are the same things you're doing. You're grumbling, you're complaining, you're backbiting, you're slandering, you're sexually immoral, you're idolaters, you're greedy, you're breaking into schismatic camps. You know, uh, that's exactly what happens in Numbers when um, Korah and Dathan, Dathan with their rebellion. You know, all of Israel are priests, Moses. All of Israel is holy, and you set yourself up over God's people. 
Paul's hearing the same kind of accusations. Clement will bring this up when he talks about how they've ousted their leaders, and he rebukes them for it. So chapter 10 is Paul, he's, he's, it's not that he's turning the argument, but he's kind of summing things up before he goes into chapter 11. And, and it's, it's almost as if, um, as if you were, if you were uh, looking at a bullseye and you're moving closer and closer into the target. And so chapter 10 is taking us closer and closer into the target because chapter 11 is the Eucharist. And he's going to summarize a lot of this up again. Yes. In a more, com- uh, a more complete manner. Yes, yes. Because in 10, he talks about being baptized. And so in the beginning of 10, so the, you, you come into being part of the covenant, right? You're baptized, you're part of Christ. Don't be like Israel in the desert. And then he gets into chapter 11. And the first part, of, chapter 11 breaks, breaks in half, essentially. The first chapter 11 is one of, one of Paul's other prohibitions, is that women need to have their head covered. What? Now let me interject, okay? Let me interject at this you, point. He waited this long to interject. <laughs> Good. I'm, just, I'm just playing. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just... <laughs> well, okay, so Paul, Paul, his next prohibition is that they, uh, they, women cover their heads. Why? He says in the beginning of chapter 11, <coughs> I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. So here he's saying, you guys are maintaining a measure of sacramental con- uh, continuity. You're doing a good job. So he, he praises them when the praise is right and rebukes them when it's not. So he's saying, you, you have received the traditions, paradosis, and you're keeping them. And he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So a man with a head covering dishonors Jesus. And he's saying a woman with her head uncovered dis- dishonors her husband if she's married. Now, I don't, I don't, we, have, we don't have time to go into head coverings at length, all right? Uh, so let me hit some highlights. People say that this argument in the first chapter, the first part of 11, is a historical thing <coughs> that was rooted in the practice of the priestesses who would shave their heads at the, the uh, temple in Corinth, at the Acro-Corinth, where they would prophesy with their heads uncovered, meaning their heads were shaved, and they were also prostitutes, right? So this is what's going on in Corinth, and Paul is calling the Corinthians not to be like these Corinthian uh, priestesses. Well, there's no, there's no way to, to deny that, right? I think it would be kind of crazy to, to denounce that. And if that was the, if that was the parameter, or the boundary for the practice, then you would have seen the early church leave it there, but they didn't. Case in point is that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about baptisms for the dead. We don't even know what he's talking about because it ceases so quickly, it never even spreads to the other churches. It doesn't go anywhere else. And it's gone from Christian history. Whereas head coverings don't disappear, for women, don't disappear in the churches until the 1960s. And when you look at some of the uh, stuff going on right now with, with TV and social, this and that, you know, what is it? It's the Handmaid's Tale or something. Like it's women who wear bonnets or somehow or another being oppressed by men. Or I, I just see the, I saw the commercial a couple weeks ago and I was like, oh, okay, whatever that is. I'm not watching that. Uh, but there's this, this idea that if a woman covers her head, it's a stereotype or something bad. When for Paul, he's talking about authority in the church because he's talking about the traditions that, he's, that they have received from him. And the, this, the, the 
head covering principle is not rooted in Paul's argument because of what they're doing there. And he has no problem citing what's going on in other places. He does it in other parts of his letters. But what he's talking about here, he roots in creation. So the practice of men having long hair and short hair, and like, well, that's, that's just, I don't know about that. Well, go back and read Leviticus. And he's got, there's all kinds of laws about beards and trimming of beards and head shavings and tattoos being uh, forbidden and, and, and women dressing like women and men dressing like men. And Paul's summing all of that up and is giving it now to the Gentiles as gospel. Not to be a one-to-one ratio, but to say, here are these principles, and you have to have these principles incorporated into your life at the Church of Corinth, and to reinforce that this is not just a particular command because of the Corinthian practice of the Corinthian uh, pagan temples. But he says that there are no other practices amongst any of the churches. He says in verse 14, if anyone is not disposed, if anyone is disposed to be contentious, he's talking about head coverings. We recognize no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So what I mean by not being able to go at length and the more of this is that I could talk about how in the 1960s there was an intentional gathering together of women to go to church without head coverings. And head coverings were everything from veils to hats to bonnets to, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff. I miss I miss the big old hat day. I think that would be a great time. Well, you had a lot of men were wearing hats up too up until the early sixties. Outside, not in the church, yeah. but they were yeah. they were wearing hats too. I mean, hats as a other than ball caps have largely gone out across the culture. Uh, but this is this is why we don't have time to go at length into lots of stuff about head coverings. But the point that Paul's making, and this is one of his other prohibitions, there has to be hierarchy in the church, and it's got to be arranged upon the, the principles laid out in Genesis. And you need to keep these traditions because all the other churches are keeping them. Okay, so let, let's, let's, let's hit a pause there because we are not halfway through. We're over halfway through the book. But look at the level of prohibitions and how the, he, at this, thus far he's dealing with everything from uh, sexual practices to gender identity to, to roles within the church and in the family to um, unity in the church idolatry and greed and and it's how apostolic practice the gospel and then uh, the go- the gospel and the apostolic practice how they're so bound together you can't separate them and how there are pra- there are practices that must be obeyed amongst all of the churches while there is a a permission to particular kinds of variations we saw that in chapter 7 but most of what's in the new testament is not particular variation it's universal practice. Otherwise, what purpose does it serve other than a, as a, a book of consultation that you go back to consult for something that might be appropriate? And that's how a lot of liberal theology looks at the Scripture, is that it's, it's a, a book of consultation instead of the binding Word of God that judges every culture. Yeah. The big difference here, okay? All right. Now, in the middle of chapter 11, Paul goes into his discussion on the, the Lord's Supper on the Eucharist. And here he rebukes them. He rebukes them so sternly, it's a direct contrast. So he praises them for keeping the traditions that he's given them in the beginning of chapter 11. But here in the middle, he rebukes them for not doing what they should. That they, they are not following his commands and that Jesus is judging them and killing some of them in the church. When he says that 
so many of some of them have fallen asleep because of the way that they're not rightly discerning his uh, the body of Christ in the Eucharist and the way that they're not discerning the body, meaning they are dividing against each other. He's saying some of you are falling asleep. You're dying. That's chapter 10, where he's, the Lord's killing them. So in chapter 10, the Lord kills the people in Israel, the Israelites in the desert because they're not keeping the covenant. One of the, this is going to sound awkward to some people, but one of the blessings for the Corinthians is that Paul doesn't say that they've died. He says they've fallen asleep. Now, the New Testament only uses the phrase falling asleep for Christians. So this goes back to chapter 1 and to chapter 3, where Paul's saying these people who are doing these things thus far, who are falling asleep by the judgment of God, are still in covenant with him, and it's through a fiery expectation of judgment when he tries all their works and proves what they are, that they will be presented blameless at the throne. Whereas the Israelites, they died and never went into the promised land. So when you're looking at the second half of chapter 11, Paul's not saying they've been cut off from Christ, even though in chapter 6 he says that's a very real possibility. Okay, Because what happens is that Christ and the church are inextricably bound together. They can't be divided. The head can't be divided from the body. But he rebukes them for failing to recognize, to discern Christ in the Eucharist. So we've got a whole layer of prohibitions that we don't have time to mine, other than to say that this section of chapter 11 is about the Eucharist and Paul's commands on what should be done. And I would love to be at the Bible study when he went back to Corinth, because he says um, at the end of chapter 11, about the other things I will give you directions when I come. But love to hear what that was. One of the beautiful things is about the apostolic fathers is that when you read First Clement, you get an idea of what some of those things would have been. And you see how they're not contradictory to Scripture, but they help fill out the things that Scripture alludes to. They're like, what was he talking about? And you read the guys, the other guys that Paul, you know, discipled, and you can see it, okay? Chapter, um, uh, the end of chapter, so starting in chapter 11, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 is one major segment of text. Now, they break into much smaller groupings, but when I say a major segment of text, what Paul is directly addressing with his prohibitions are now really rooted around public worship. So in chapter 11, when he talks about a woman prophesying, so preaching or, or giving prophetic gifts, so Paul is acknowledging that women are anointed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, Chloe's household has sent the delegates, and that they have the Spirit, that some of them are married, some of them are widows, and some of them are young, and they're, they are, they're declaring the Word of God with the, the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. And he's saying, here's how that has to happen. Women who are married need to cover their heads, right? That's, that's 1 Corinthians 11. And he says, you're celebrating the Eucharist incorrectly at the end of 11. Comes into 12, and now here's this very, very expanded teaching on the spiritual gifts and how everybody's gifted differently. And so how do you bring about different gifts in a measure of unity? Love, chapter 13. Tie it back to chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. See how all these tie back, tie back in together and they're, they're connectedness, okay? My concern is, as people are listening, for those of you that are listening and are still here with us, there's too much of explanation of Corinthians here that's... Go back and re-listen, my friends. Go back and, and re-listen. <laughs> there's I, I, there's a lot. Yeah, we're, we're, we're hitting Paul's prohibitions because we, as, you, as we open this with, when you opened it with um, David and Nathan, 
we rebuke the Corinthians, but we're exactly like them. Mm. Chapter 14, Paul goes into spiritual gifts again and lays out prohibitions. At the end, and he talks about one and two and three prophesying and the others judging. So he's laying out how to work through this stuff he's describing in chapter 11, the first part of 11, right? Now, the hot button one for today, even more hot button uh, than the women's covering, head coverings, is when he says that uh, he doesn't permit women to speak in the church. He says in uh, verse like 33b, he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, even as the law says. Keep reading. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. What? Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones it has reached? Keep going. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Okay, so there's, there's layers here, okay? So Paul's got prohibitions. Now, some modern commentators in the past 60 years has said that Paul is quoting their correspondence to them again by saying that women should be quiet and subordinate, as the law says. But that's not been the historic reading of the church. The historic reading of the church has been, here he is referring back to chapter 11. He's not prohibiting women from preaching or prophesying in the Spirit, because he's laid out the expectation for how that should happen. What he's insisting upon is that no one say, I have the Holy Spirit to do as I please. I'm going to disregard my husband's authority, and I'm going to disregard the unity of the church, and I'm going to engage in what I think is the Holy Spirit telling me, no matter what anybody says. That's kind of been a, a bigger picture of what's going on. So Paul is, you, you got to read 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14 together. And it's the, what is the point that he's insisting upon? that there be decency and order in the church. And that word order is used in uh, Luke's gospel and in, in the Greek for, the, for uh, Levitical worship. So Paul's pointing out that there's order in the worship of God's people, and that cannot be jettisoned. So is he saying that women can't speak in the sense that they have to be um, like mute? Well, not if you read everything he's talking about here. But is he saying that women can jettison authority and do as they please, kind of like the Wonder Woman and all this stuff today that's, that's so highfalutin and powerful? No, he's, not, he's not, clearly not advocating for that. So you've got to keep these things in context. And again, he's emphasizing the same things he's been saying. The Word of God didn't originate with them. They can't change it. Here's the practice amongst all the churches. You can't change it. And if you think you have the Spirit, I have him too. And guess what? I'm an apostle. <laughs> so, I mean, he's, he's laying it out. And, and we, we are King David to Nathan. We have the Spirit. Let's make our own denominations. We have the Spirit. Let's change doctrines and practices. No, you have the Spirit, so make sure that you stay in step with the whole church historically and globally. This is, a, this is, the, this is the apostolic argument, because today people say, well, so-and-so is anointed. They should be uh, put in positions of leadership and power. Let me, let me give an example of somebody who's passed away, and this is going to make some of our, our Pentecostal buddies upset. My, my apologies, gentlemen, but not really. Okay. Uh, Amy Simple McPherson, who founded the Foursquare, 
was not morally eligible. If you, if you believe in women's orders, she was not morally eligible, and you believe in the ordination outside of the apostolic succession, she was not morally eligible to lead the church. But you can't say that she was not uh, a part of the body who had an anointing that impacted the church. And we make the miscategorization, we, we categorize incorrectly. We say, uh, like the judges, like the Corinthians, this person is anointed, they should be in charge. And that is exactly not the case. That the argument's reversed, it's backwards. That's not how it should be. Okay? We'd have to come back <clears throat> and talk about this all at length, again, these topics. Yes. But we're hitting Paul's pro <clears throat> prohibitions and how we don't want to be Corinthian. So here, here's my biggest, and this is a little bit more detailed, um, is how do we marry the two ideas together that he tells these women not to get married if they're already widows? It's better for mm -hmm. them not to. However, he here tells them to submit to their husbands. And, <laughs> and that, that the household should be the place for understanding. So how do you marry? It's just by being a widow, you're submitting yourself to ignorance? Or? No, being a widow, you're submitting yourself directly to the headship of Christ. That's what he's getting at in 1 Corinthians 7 and in 1 Corinthians 11. But practically. So she submitted to the church, which is why the rise of monastic uh, convents, like women in, in, as, as nuns, that's not a medieval church thing. That goes back to this mm -hmm. era. Celibacy amongst the clergy doesn't go back to the medieval church. It goes back to Jesus and to Paul and to Timothy. Because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul calls for, for men to be celibate as well, because they are then only focused on the things of the Lord. So the married woman demonstrates that she's married through the head covering in 1 Corinthians 11, while she operates in whatever the spiritual gift she has uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But she does it within the, the household, the economy of God, right? So Paul parallels, he does this especially in the pastoral epistles, First, uh, Second Timothy, and Titus. He parallels the household of God, oikos, and the household of humanity, like a human household. God is the father. Uh, Ignatius calls the bishop the father. You know, the father of the church, uh, father, right, reverend father, and God. We say. So there's a parallel between households and headship, and so the woman who's not married, her immediate head is not her husband anymore. Her head is Christ, and so how does she serve Christ? But by serving in the church and the authorities in the church. Yeah, and I think he even brings out the entire quote he talks about. It would be uh, better on the day of judgment. Yes, when he talks about it. So, yes, I guess that does make sense. I mean, if their if their next immediate cover is Christ, there's a it, it, that is a that is not a uh, unidirectional. That is a uh, I think a bidirectional. Well, this is why in, in in Timothy, Paul says that widows of a certain age who have washed the saints' feet are only those who are eligible. For financial help, what he's saying, what he, when you read him in context with, with his uh, his other letters, he's saying the women who have obeyed the commands and lived lives of devotion to the church, serving the Lord as as widows, they're the ones who receive the help from the church. Mm -hmm. The others need to be cared for by their families. So he's he's paralleling the household of God, the church, and the household of of people, households within the church, and the same lines, parallel lines that organize one organize the other, and that's the whole thing about headship. And, and why it gets into something specific like coverings and hair length. I mean, we, if, you, if you preach a sermon <laughs> on hair length today, people think you're crazy. Like, that's legalism. I can do what I want. I, Jesus had long hair. Uh, listen, uh, can you hear the sigh? I hope that got recorded. 
Sorry. <laughs> like we're missing the whole up to point, heaven. right? What is the spirit Sorry. of the Lord saying? What has the church always done? And if that's your contention point, there's a bigger problem at hand. Paul, Paul gets very specific. So, the, I mean, we've talked about what he says. He, he talks about who you can eat with. Yeah. He talks about what you can eat while you're eating. He talks yes. about um, what kind of uh, articles of clothing to wear, how, what kind of haircut to get, uh, how to do church specifically. He's he, not, he doesn't pull any punches. And I, I think his, his direct approach to these prohibitions is unique to Corinth. Like in how much he's giving and how specific he's being. Oh yeah, he doesn't get this way with the other churches. But this is, the significant part is that when he mentions all the other churches, he's saying this is what they're doing. You need to do what they're doing over here and over here and over here and over here. And he's writing, to, he talks about Jews and Gentiles in the letter. So this isn't even like a Jewish or a Gentile practice. This is a practice of the church. So when you go to read uh, Peter, Peter talks about the church being a uh, chosen people. A, a royal, a royal priesthood. priesthood. The, one of the words he uses for a uh, 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 chosen race, ethne. The New Testament calls the church an ethnic people. Don't define ethnicity according to modern secular standards that's just a few hundred years old. Ethnicity begins when God creates Israel because he distinguishes Israel from the goyim, the nations, the distinctions carried into the New Testament, so that the early fathers talk about Jews, Gentiles, and the church. That the church herself is a different ethne amongst all the other people groups on the planet, and it's a Catholic ethne. And that Catholic people, that Catholic ethnic group, is composed of people from every geographic province you can imagine. And the prohibitions that Paul lays down for the Corinthians are prohibitions that we better pay attention to. Otherwise, we are the Corinthians, and we will fall in the desert, no matter how anointed we are. Um, I think we've done a great job of covering uh, the first portion of Corinthians, the first letter of Corinthians. Yeah, we talk about second. Or and pro and prohibitions <laughs> as it relates to those. <clears throat> I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. Thanks for listening to this whole thing. I'm Daryl. <laughs> <laughs>